This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and associate professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, I'm excited to be interviewing Farah Nayeri about her new book, Takedown, Art and Power in the Digital Age, which was published by Astra House in January of 2022. Ms. Nayeri is an arts and culture writer for the New York Times and the host of the Culture Blast podcast. Originally from Iran, she has written for Time Magazine, the Wall Street Journal Europe, and Bloomberg, and has interviewed numerous artists and architects including David Hockney, Jeff Koons, Richard Serra, and Frank Gehry. The book she wrote that we'll be discussing today, Takedown, explores some of the difficult questions plaguing the art world. Who gets to make art and who owns it? How do we correct the inequities of the past? What does authenticity, exploitation, and appropriation mean in art? In Takedown, Ms. Nayeri poses these questions and many more, and through interviews with a wide range of artists and art world luminaries, she investigates the role that censorship has played in art over time. I'm looking forward to discussing this book with its author today, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Farah Nayeri, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Allison. It's a pleasure to be with you. All right. Well, I wonder if you might begin. I always ask uh, those that I'm interviewing our guests for the day to tell us a bit about themselves before we launch into a discussion of this book. Um, I'd love to know, and it's in this book a little bit, so it's kind of getting into it. How did you become interested in art? Um, Where were you educated? Did you have any mentors along the way? Um, And just kind of generally, how did you become the author and journalist that you are today? Give us some of this background, if you would. Thank you, Allison. I'm actually of Iranian origin, but um, I was uh, the daughter of a diplomat. And so we were um, moving around a lot as a child when I was a child. And I, and I lived in the Middle East and North Africa um, all the way up to my, I guess, early teens and then moved to Paris where I lived for a long time. And, and um, uh, I am a dual citizen. Um, and, uh, and in Paris, of course, as you can imagine, Paris is an art history course in, in and of itself. I mean, you just, just by virtue of living there, just walking down the street and or along the Seine, you become in some ways educated in art and architecture, even in spite of yourself, let alone when you are interested in culture and art and architecture. I have to say, I'm very bad at drawing, extremely bad. I can't, you know, <laughs> draw, I can't even draw a stick man properly. And it's always been that way. And I'm very sad about it. I'm, uh, more of a musician. I'm a classical pianist. And so I can't say that I understood art the way someone who is artistically talented would. But 
I became incredibly interested in art because when I got to Paris, I was studying at the American School of Paris, you know, um, in high school. And um, my English teacher, someone who, who taught English there, um, you know, alongside being an art historian and a great scholar, was Michael Brenson. And Michael Brenson, um, who then went on to become the New York Times art critic and is now one of uh, the most important art historians in America, he is currently. Uh, writing the biography of David Smith. Uh, imagine uh, this person, a man such as this being my teacher in high school. So he kind of um, passed on the, the, love, the love of the visual arts to me in equal measure uh, to Paris. I mean, be, living in Paris and being taught by Michael Branson, I really caught the art bug. Mm. And, uh, you know, and, you know, when you, when you live in Paris, even to this day, um, people, you know, everyone goes to exhibitions. So if you don't go to see the latest exhibition at the Pompidou or wherever, you kind of feel left out among a certain, I guess, I suppose, educated or middle-class community, whatever. Um, everybody, not, okay, everybody is an exaggeration, but a lot of people go to these exhibitions. It's not an elite thing. And so it's a bit like seeing the latest movie. And so, mm -hmm. you know, just by virtue of living and growing up in Paris, I became very enthralled by art and, you know, decided that I really needed to understand it more. And even though I studied international relations in university, I then studied art history on my own. And, and I would go on trips to Florence and Rome and on my own and with these guidebooks and art history books. And I kind of am self-taught in art history, as it were. And then, of course, over the years, going to so many dozens and dozens of museums all over Europe and occasionally also in the United States. I mean, yeah, I just kind of trained my eye. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I understand so much of that. I, this idea of, you know, everybody goes to exhibitions or, or a, a vast swath of the kind of general public goes to exhibitions. I lived for two years when I was a kid in Naples, Italy, oh, wow. um, because both of my parents are in the were in the military and we were stationed there. And I, I just, I really got to experience this very different way that, that they are in Europe in terms of going to see art, being just kind of a regular thing and you know I'm an American and I know now it's very different here and that 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 culture of kind of art going public is on the rise but it, it's not entrenched the way it is in Europe and in major cities like Rome and Paris and London the way that you're describing well this leads me maybe to the the next question that I want to ask which is how did you come to write Takedown? I mean, how did this book originate? Where did it come from in your career and in your thinking? What made you feel like you had to write this, your first book, I should mention, right mm. now? Um, well, I mean, I've been writing, uh, I guess, for the New York Times uh, on art and culture and a lot on the visual arts for about eight years now. But a couple of years ago, um, there was an exhibition here at the National Gallery here in London. And uh, it's, it was an exhibition called Gauguin Portraits. And um, it did what it said on the tin, as they say here in London. In other words, it was focusing on Gauguin and, you know, showing these creatures and these lovely Tahitian uh, girls and, and various other characters um, who he portrayed. Um, and so I knew this was coming maybe two years before it actually opened. And I remember going to interview Kehinde Wiley, uh, the great African-American artist and portraitist of Barack Obama, as we all know. Um, and I remember sitting with him in a gallery in London, interviewing him again for the Times. And, uh, and so I said, so Kehinde, you know, what, um, what are you going to be up to next? And he, would, he was playing his cards close to his chest. And initially, what, he didn't want to tell me. So I'm not going to tell you. And I said, oh, please, you know, come on. And so then, um, and so then he said, okay, okay, I'll tell you. I plan to go to Tahiti and sort of see Gauguin, who is an artist I'm absolutely passionate about, but see him through a kind of 21st century lens a more contemporary lens. And, you know, we had just come out of, or we were still in the middle of the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Mm -hmm. This is 2017, right? We're in the thick of it. And so he's saying to me, I want to go to Gauguin, uh, sorry, I want to go to Tahiti and look at Gauguin as this kind of um, um, 
Weinstein of his day in a way and see, you know, how I'm going to react to him because he was creepy as, and of course, can they then used a, um, a four letter word, um, you know, and, and how am I going to, how am I going to react to him? How am I going to feel about him? And so God, that got me thinking because, you know, up until that point, I wasn't really looking at Gauguin or any of these great artists of the past through a contemporary lens. That's not what I did. That's not what anybody really, not many people did here. And, um, and I thought, gosh, that's interesting to kind of see what they look like, these guys, uh, because they were mostly guys. And so then two years later, I go to the show and I write a whole piece around on from that angle. Um, you know, what does he look like to women, to feminists, to feminist art historians in the post-Weinstein era? And to my surprise, I guess, um, the exhibition's curators themselves addressed the issue of Gauguin taking up with young girls of 13 and 14, marrying a couple of them, quote unquote, according to the local custom, when he was already married to a woman back in Europe, a Danish woman who was the mother of his five children. So all of these kind of like aspects of Gauguin's um, life and lifestyle that had not been really addressed in major mainstream museums such as the National Gallery before. And so to see the wall text, the main wall text saying Gauguin had sexual relations with 13, 14 year old girls and he took advantage of his status as you know, um, a French functionary or a colonial you know, um, envoy or whatever, I just kind of thought, gosh, this is all very new. And so I'd, I wrote all about it in a story, in an article, and there were some very um, stringent, or let's say not stringent, there were some very kind of slightly shrill voices in there describing him as a pedophile. Um, others were just generally saying, it's okay to show Gauguin, and we've all shown Gauguin in various museums, but we need to talk about the dirty stuff, as one of them put it. And so that was the gist of the article. And uh, it had a kind of slightly spicy headline because, you know, it was kind of a headline that was riffing off something that was on the audio guide. And the headline was, is it time Gauguin got canceled? So you can imagine with question mark, but I mean, you can imagine what kind of reaction that kind of uh, incited. Um, there, there were scandalous reactions in France, in Italy, various other places saying the New York Times is suggesting that Gauguin got canceled, get canceled, which of course I wasn't doing. But anyway, so it kind of went viral and, um, and the article was noticed by a very smart young agent in New York. Um, and he approached me and said, how would you like to write a book about recontextualizing art and art history through sort of 21st century eyes. And I said, you know, eventually I said, yeah, that, I think that would kind of be fun. And mm -hmm. um, I did it. I, I, I did the story. I did the, excuse me, I wrote the book um, in a very short span of time. I mean, I think I wrote it in about seven months, but, you know, including research. So, yeah, but yeah. It, it is, yeah, seven, eight months, but it is what an interesting story. I mean, just yeah. a, so much of that. I, I don't think I realized, though I should have put together because so many of us read your piece in the Times. And I think it's it's still major clickbait. I mean, you know, that it's such a an important question. It's a punchy headline. I mean, it does so much work. This is it time Go Gang got canceled. Um, mm -hmm. But interesting to hear that an agent reached out to you. I think that's a little bit unusual, you know, in terms of, yeah. I think a lot of people People are seeking agents, especially if you're a writer of nonfiction and, and not the other way around. And gosh, to write a book in seven months. I mean, I'm, I'm an academic, so we percolate on ideas so often for, for years and years. I mean, you sometimes read in the acknowledgement of, of books uh, written by, by art historians. You know, I've been thinking about this and working on it for 10 years, 20 yes. years. You know, it's amazing. Um, I wanted to again, you know, you, you started talking about, and it's interesting to hear that that Gauguin Portraits show 
at the National Gallery in 2019 was was kind of the inflection point for this work. And I know, as you said, that you've done a number of interviews, you did them for that original Times piece, and they show up again here when you talk about Gauguin in, I think it's mainly sort of in the second and then the beginning of the third chapter. And I should start mm -hmm. laying out some of the uh, what the book is about. So the second chapter is called Just Not Good Enough and talks uh, mainly, I think, about women um, yeah. and how they're kept out of the canon and, and kept out of, you know, so frequently the textbooks and museum exhibitions. And then the third chapter is called, and maybe all of these chapters, I thought should kind of be in scare quotes, morally reprehensible <laughs> trash, um, which talks about some of the scandals that ensued over uh, Baltus painting, uh, Therese dreaming, and this happened, the scandal in 2017. Of course, Robert Maplethorpe's uh, photographs for the Perfect Moment exhibition, which it was in 1989, and the NEA4, which followed it as a scandal in 1990. Um, but you do, you know, you talk about Gauguin, you kind of return or, or visit again some of what gets dredged up in the original New York Times article, um, and I, I found that second chapter so interesting in the sense that, you know, half of it was about how awful and sexist the art world is, which mm -hmm. I don't think I'm kind of shocking anyone or you're shocking anyone by, by talking about that. But then you land on kind of saying, I still like Gauguin's works, even though I recognize he was a pretty bad guy. Um, and at the very end, you say that museums need to be, quote, far more transparent about Gauguin's private life in the work's presentation, end quote. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, maybe as a kind of initial foray into getting into the content of this book, what would that mean in practice, Farah? What should we do with Gauguin? Well, I think um, what the National Gallery did uh, seemed pretty, pretty good. I mean, in other words, from the very first space that the visitor entered, that giant wall text with a huge portrait, black and white, obviously black and white portrait of Gauguin, from that very first wall text, you were told about this person doing what he did and, you know, um, marrying or living with 13 and 14 year old girls. Now, I appreciate that maybe in medieval times or pre-medieval times or in centuries past and even in some cultures today that that might not be considered uh, criminal or um, might not be frowned upon, et cetera. But Gauguin was a citizen of France. And if he had been sitting in the middle of Paris with these 13 and 14 or 14 year old girls, there is no way that he would have been able to get away with it. And especially since he was already married, but it's not even that. I mean, I think he just, it was not something that it was totally frowned upon and he was very well aware of that. And yet he went to Tahiti and, you know, there, I, I, I guess the parents of these young girls um, were not well to do. And so they saw it as a way of, you know, you know, perhaps, um, being a little bit better off by marrying their daughter off to this guy, but to this painter. But so, you know, there there's all kinds of um, questions to be asked. And so these kinds of circumstances do just need to be spelled out. We just need to spell them out and not sweep them under the carpet as has been done forever in a day. Mm -hmm. Forever in a day, we didn't know. I mean, I when I wrote this story, I got a note from a very senior editor at the New York Times, and he wrote to me. I'd never met him before. And he said, this is an interesting piece. And I didn't know that about Gauguin. Now, this is someone who is Ivy League educated. I mean, you know, he really is, um, you know, I think he went to Harvard or whatever. I mean, these are not people who uh, would not be uh, aware of Gauguin. He was totally aware of Gauguin. He liked Gauguin's art, but he was not aware of this aspect of Gauguin's personality. And I'm not saying that we need to go and dig into everybody's cupboard and every artist's cupboard and pull out whatever we find there. Um, you know, but a person like him, it's a little bit of an egregious example. You know, what he did was a little bit kind of more than a little bit beyond the pale to our 21st century eyes. Okay. So I think that 
when something is beyond the pale, the way, in a way, Harvey Weinstein was, I think we need to mention it. And I think it needs to be spelled out because mm -hmm. there are women who find that gross and uncomfortable and who actually don't want to go see Gauguin. They don't like that about him. And they mm -hmm. find that disturbing. And there, there might be even men. I mean, it, it's not a gender thing. There are people who might find that off-putting. And mm -hmm. you just put the information out there, um, I think is, is the answer. It's not something that I personally you know, knew before I wrote this book, but I talked to a lot of people who have been working in museums and who are very good, who are top curators or top museum directors. And that's what they all said. And that's what the many of the voices in my story said. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that, that I think basically to be transparent through wall text, through talks, through the talks program, through the audio guide, through whatever communication means you have if you're a museum. Mm -hmm. But you don't think it's helpful to describe him, even if he was, as a pedophile? I mean, you, you quote several times in the book a really, really brilliant uh, young art historian mm -hmm. and curator, Ashley Remmer. I think you quote mm -hmm. her in the original piece, too. And, you know, mm -hmm. she's one who's come out and, and just kind of point blank said what we're seeing, what we know about his life in these paintings, in his journals, in his mm -hmm. letters. I mean, it's clear that, that that's what he was and what he was doing. But you think that's too far, that that's not helpful? or No, I have actually, if you, uh, there is one sentence in the book where I say that technically this man is, does qualify as a pedophile mm -hmm. by our present day definition. Mm -hmm. There is no question about that. But um, I am not going to go and profess, you know, uh, censorship or anything to any museum because, because I think that the closer the episode was to our times, in other words, if someone was doing this now, I wouldn't even be writing about them. I mean, I think that it would be so um, irksome and so upsetting and so disturbing and wrong that a, a, an artist who would be living with a 13-year-old girl nowadays, a contemporary living artist, I think, I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, no, I would not be reacting mm -hmm. in this way. But when you, when you're dealing with someone who lived basically, who died maybe a hundred years ago, um, there is a distance between them and us. And somehow I have to say that the, his contribution to art history is so extraordinary and his paintings are so exceptional that I, no, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't call for Gauguin to be sponsored. Excuse me. I wouldn't call for uh, Gauguin to be censored. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that comes through strong in the book in terms of one of the things that you really say kind of most point blank, most clearly and repeatedly is that you don't believe in mostly the destruction of artworks. I don't know that you come out and say artwork shouldn't be censored, but you say that they should basically under no circumstances be destroyed, even if they are taken down for various reasons because of right. various factors. And one of them being, you know, historical hindsight and hopefully <laughs> the growth of a sort of morality over time, which I think is partly what you're contending with in this book is how do our, our ethics and values kind of change over time. Um, hmm. Maybe I'll ask you, and this is a kind of a broad question, so I hope it's not too unfair, um, hmm. just to kind of lay out for our listeners what you argue for in this book. You know, what are your, your real sentiments that you're trying to get across in all the, the quagmire that we're experiencing in the art world about issues like Gauguin and many others, um, which, you, which you talk about so so effectively in the book. I mean, you lay out so many examples over time from the Counter-Reformation and Savonarola in the 15th century and, and you know, Botticelli, all the way up to, to very, very recent exhibitions and, um, and artists' works that have caused problems. So what is the big takeaway here? What is the takeaway <laughs> takedown? <laughs> so sure. I mean, uh, the big takeaway is that there is absolutely no point in censoring art, that um, 
anyone across, like across the ages, we've had examples all the way from, as you say, from Savonarola, from the popes of the Counter-Reformation, all the way up to the present day when you had, you know, in 1969, an exhibition of erotica in Los Angeles was basically shut down by the police because members of the public went in and there were Picassos in there and there were some, I mean, works of, you know, showing couples going at it. But, you know, I mean, something that today we would laugh at. And that was shut down by the police. Now, what is the point of that? I mean, what is the point, for instance, of censoring, you know, uh, 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 I guess an image of Ch uh, Jeff Koons and his uh, then wife, La Cicciolina? I mean, you know, what would be the point today? If we look back at an incident, if that were to be censored, it would make no sense to us today because today every mobile phone uh, you know, can have instant access to pornography. Little kids have access to pornography. I mean, their parents can try and stop it. But in other words, uh, as you were saying earlier on, um, I think morality progresses with time. Morality is something that's very, very flexible. And the whole issue of what's moral and what's immoral is constantly changing. So that makes the whole point, the, the issue of censorship totally pointless at any point in time. And the destruction of art is something that I can never, ever condone under any circumstance. Now, in the, under the present circumstances, the, the issue that seems to trouble all of us extremely is the issue of child imagery. Child, any, anything that might show a child either a naked or object of desire or anything of that sort is profoundly uncomfortable. And I don't know that in the future it will become comfortable. I, I don't know that it will ever become comfortable because as societies, we progress. And as societies, we develop mores that move with the times. And so an artist like Balthus is not one that I would personally show. I mean, if I were an institution, I would not put on a Balthus exhibition. And to be frank with you, I haven't seen a Balthus exhibition in a very long time. Mm -hmm. there, there was one at the Met a number of years ago, but I haven't seen Balthus crop up on people's you know, radar um, very much at all. And there is a reason for that. Mm -hmm. He causes discomfort. So yeah, my answer um, in a very roundabout way is that censoring art is pointless but we need to be sensitive to the times we live in and that our museums and exhibitions have to be reflective of the times we live in. And the times we live in are now tolerant of heterosexual and even homosexual sex. It's not a problem to see imagery. Maplethorpe's uh, homosexual images are now shown everywhere and there's not even a warning sign next to them. So, however, um, in our day and age, what really troubles people, rightly so, is um, imagery that portrays children. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that's where I draw the line. Yeah, I'm interested. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by your answer. And I, I'm glad that you kind of came down hard in the way that you do. It's interesting that you mention uh, Baltus in particular, just because I watched the uh, live stream of the Christie's auction, as so many of us probably did oh, last yeah. week, and both of the Baltus works sold for way above their estimates, and I, I was personally a little bit horrified and just thought, gosh, who is buying these? Who is paying, you know, double the estimate? I don't remember the exact number, somewhere around 10 million for both of them were paintings, not exactly erotic, but they were both of young women, as, as his works so often were. Young women or young girls? I, I, I didn't follow, actually. I should have followed more closely. Yeah, you know, I, I think, uh, as is so often the, mm. the case, it's difficult to tell. One is, one was a, a girl at a window. I would describe her as a girl seen from behind, but fully clothed. Mm -hmm. And the other was, I think, four or five. Also, I would say either girls or young women, kind of right on that cusp, as, as he often mm. portrayed. Um, so interesting to, to think about that in the context of you saying, there haven't been shows, but there's things going on in the art market we should keep an eye on. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, your response to my question about kind of 
broadly, what do you argue for in this book um, reminds me of something that goes on in the third chapter, this chapter called Morally Reprehensible Trash that I already mentioned, where you do talk about Baltus and Maplethorpe and the NEA4. And I have to say, I was a little bit shocked by where you landed in this chapter. You say that, quote, what qualifies as indecent and obscene is constantly shifting. You say a little bit later, the needle is forever moving, both kind of mm -hmm. evocative images, which I agree with. I mean, as a historian, it'd be hard to disagree with that. That's true mm -hmm. for sure. Um, but you seem to use this as a kind of way of saying that maybe nothing should be removed from galleries like the Baltus or necessarily really recontextualized because opinions will change. Like, um, and this strikes me as an unusual justification. No, I, I, I actually, um, if you got that impression, I apologize. That's certainly oh. not the impression that I wanted to give. I think the recontextualization of the Baltus is absolutely necessary. Okay. And um, absolutely, no, that, that completely... Um, so a I, wall, I, yeah. a wall label, we, a new wall label next to the Yeah, wall. I mean, okay. I think I would I would be very happy if there were a, a new wall label. Uh, and uh, no, 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 I, I don't, um, you know, and if, they, and if um, the museum chooses to replace him because he's part of the permanent collection, if they choose to replace him with another artist, I'm not going to complain. I mean, but I just... Um, no, I mean, what the, a museum chooses to show or not show, um, I mean, uh, I think that there are cases where, where imagery is so inappropriate and so clashing with our times that it should not be shown. Um, mm -hmm. And that Baltus image does make me very uncomfortable, mm -hmm. personally. Yeah, and I, it makes me very uncomfortable because it's a, as you know, and as our listeners, I'm sure know, it shows. Um, I think she's a pre-teenage girl, and she's sitting on a bench, and she's got one foot on the floor, another foot up on the bench, and we can see her white underwear underneath her skirt. And yeah, no, this painting really makes me very uncomfortable, mm -hmm. and. Um, yeah, I mean, again, I'm a journalist. I'm a person who is professionally paid to go and look at both sides, synthesize and analyze. And so that's what I've tried to do in this book. But there are times when I find an artwork, um, yeah, un uncomfortable. And I wouldn't, if I were the uh, chief curator of the Met, I would not include that in the permanent collection. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would just put it in storage, you know, yeah. put something else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it's not as though they don't have tons of other things that they can yeah. put up, including the work of women and non-white artists, which you discuss um, in chapter four, which is called Still No Seat at the Big Table. Okay, you know, you... Let, let, let me stop you for a minute. These, yeah. cha <laughs> these chapter headlines, um, they're basically um, taken from quotes inside the chapters. In other words, they're snippets of either a kind of scandalous tabloid headline, or they're always coming from somewhere else. It's not mm -hmm. me calling something morally reprehensible trash. It's a newspaper describing, I think, the work of Maplethorpe or Serrano and using that language. And I think it's a way for me to sort of get attention, get the reader's attention. Um, but those chapters, I mean, originally what I, what I was trying to do, they are all very um, tidally organized by theme. Mm -hmm. So the first chapter is, uh, I guess, going back in art history, um, all the way back, you know, to examples of censorship. Second chapter is all about gender. The third chapter is about sex. The fourth chapter is about race. So each of these chapters actually is about a very clearly delineated theme. It's just that it would, would have been a little, you know, kind of didactic and boring if I put gender Chapter two, gender. <laughs> Chapter four, race. You know what I mean? This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe 
every day at sax.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So. Yeah, oh, that's, is, I'm glad you said that because it's exactly what I want to ask you about in the sense that, mm-hmm. you know, you're a journalist and I, I found it so fascinating. And as you said before, you're to a large degree self-taught when it comes to art. You don't have a PhD in art history. You're not, you know, you don't teach classes like I do a day in and day out where you're trying to get across what the canon is and what the problems are. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right that that these chapter titles had this really kind of punchy headline, tongue in cheek. I mean, it was very clear that that they, like I said before, that many of them should kind of go in scare quotes that that they that they're referring yeah. to something you don't necessarily believe. Um, and I'll just give two a couple more examples so that our listeners are getting more and more excited about reading the book. The fifth chapter is called "A Despicable Display of Vulgarity." Yeah. Chapter six is "All Money Is Dirt." chapter seven take them all down I mean you're getting the impression so I I liked this and I think this is what people expect from books like yours that are published by by trade presses and are meant for really general audiences Mm -hmm. and I thought it was interesting how how your voice or your style as a journalist came through in this book you you used a tactic that is completely foreign to me as an art historian which is consistently throughout the book you don't necessarily say always how you feel about something you'll use quotes from those you interviewed and let Mm -hmm. me just say for listeners you interviewed some spectacular powerful important art world figures from museum directors major curators artists, art historians like me. I mean, it runs the gamut. But again, I thought this was such an interesting, maybe specifically kind of journalistic technique to fold where you land on some of these things into what other people said when you interviewed Mm -hmm. them. How specific was this style in terms of you adopting it? Did you work on this with your agent, with your editor, or did this just come naturally to you to always kind of couch your opinion in these other thoughts? It kind of came naturally, yeah, I have to say, Um, because, um, okay, I'm a writer. I've I've been writing for two, three decades now, Uh, but I'm also a reporter and uh, an experienced reporter. And I've been covering the arts for more than 15 years now. And that's, that's, I find that I am more useful to people. I mean, I could have written a pamphlet, right? I could have written a pamphlet saying, you know, I hate Balthus and, uh, you know, (laughs) Gauguin should be canceled and Picasso should be, you know, ignored because he cheated so many times on so many women. But I I mean, and maybe, okay, that would have been an inflammatory sort of pamphlet and maybe that would have like sold uh, or got people's attention more. I have no idea, but that's not what I do. I am not a writer. I mean, I could be a writer of opinions. I have strong opinions, but I just felt like um, I just went about it the way I usually go about these things is talk to many different kinds of people, many different voices. And then at the end of every chapter, my um, my editor did ask me to synthesize and actually do and actually give um, a viewpoint. And I do do that at the end when you by the time you reach the end of each chapter, um, sorry, not paragraph. Um, you will see. You will see me um, actually pronounce myself, but I do so in a measured and guarded and way, uh, weighing the pros and cons. The way, 
I guess in a way, uh, the way a judge would. I mean, as journalists, we are in a way judges of, you know, we're the first draft of history. Uh, journalism is the first draft of history, or that's what it's called sometimes. And uh, so we have to be kind of careful in, in crafting this first draft of history. And personally, my main job, I always feel, is to reflect reality as fairly as I can, to portray people as fairly as I can. And so that's what I've tried to do here. And again, trying to be fair. But at the end of every chapter, you will see me come out and say, well, I think this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did see that. And I, I'm glad your editor kind of pushed. I know, I know, <laughs> I know how awful it can be, the, the process. I mean, awful and wonderful, maybe humbling is the right way to describe it when an editor mm-hmm. comes back to you after you drafted a chapter and maybe went through all sorts of crucibles to arrive at, at the, the writing that you produced. And then they say, oh, can you just add a little, a little bit more? Mm-hmm. And I think I'm, I'm so glad that you said it that way because I think you are absolutely right that every time at the end of these chapters, when we do hear your voice, it is so measured. It's so guarded, (laughs) sometimes to the point where maybe I was frustrated. And it's Mm. interesting, too, that you describe the work of the journalist as being somewhat like a judge. I, I often say to my students, that I think the work of the art historian is very much like a lawyer in a criminal case. Mm -hmm. And we are arguing that there's only one way to see it. And the way that we see the crime having unfolded, the crime scene being the work of art is this. And I had never thought of, of who the judge in the room is. And, and I'm going to, I'm really going to have to mull over this, Farah, this idea that journalists are the first draft of history, that you write this in this measured way, because you want to come across as the kind of neutral party conveying the facts. Um, I wanted you to argue, you know, as the, the, the historian in the room, I wanted you to land sometimes hard on some of this. And it sounds mm-hmm. now that I'm glad we're doing this interview, because it's obvious that you, you really do have very strong opinions. Um, and, and the way you wrote this book is, is for kind of specific reasons. I wondered as I was reading it, if there wasn't a certain amount of fear of backlash and that Mm -hmm. you were writing this in this kind of measured judicial way so that it would appeal to as many people as possible. I mean, we, we writers really do think about who, who are our readers and how do Mm -hmm. we keep them reading so that we can get as many of these ideas into their heads as possible. Did you think about the backlash, especially in your line of work? I mean, you interview, if you if you piss off the wrong people, I imagine that has real consequences for your career. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just so much a part of my DNA, uh, this business of reporting and, and being balanced in my reporting that it kind of, I didn't feel like, in any way hindered or hampered. It's just, I went about doing what I do, which is to, again, to speak to as many different types of people in an, uh, to illustrate um, a chapter or a theme and uh, to go into as many uh, reference materials and books as I possibly could, and then look at everything that's laid out before me and then synthesize everything and then come to some kind of conclusion. And, you know, whether, I mean, I might really hate a particular painting or a particular painter, but given the position that I'm in, given the fact that I'm writing for a newspaper that is a mainstream paper and from which objectivity is expected, and given also that I'm writing a book that is not a pamphlet, it's not a, a, a you know, something where I'm calling people names, um, I feel a responsibility and so I wasn't scared um, because I'm never scared because, because of the way I go about doing what it is that I do. And to be honest, I, um, if you talk to me privately, I'm not going to say anything different to what is in the conclusions uh, of each chapter. Um, I'm not going to suddenly turn around and say, well, yeah, in that chapter I wrote um, that, you know, we, we should never censor anything. But in actual fact, I think we should censor stuff. No, I, um, I believe in tolerance and I believe in fairness and I also believe in democracy. And um, 
we live in a democratic world, at least in the Western world, and um, we have to approach these issues and these paintings, these artists, democratically. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. you know, you're not going to see me say, um, yeah, actually, in actual fact, I would rather we had gone in and shut down such and such a show. That's just not what I would condone or profess. So, yeah, and it's I'm, not, like it's I'm, almost... not, I'm not being dishonest vis-a-vis who I am. Um, in private conversation, you know, you and I might have a, a coffee or a drink and I might privately say, oh, God, that artist is God awful. But I'm not going to put it in writing because it's just simply not fair. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not a critic. I, I mean, if I were a critic of The New York Times, I mean, I've done criticism before. I have been a reviewer of, of art, books and film in the past. And in there, I'm completely um, candid. I mean, you know, if a, book, if a book is not good, I mean, I am going to say it politely, but I am going to say it. Uh, if a movie is not good, and God knows I, I've covered the Cannes Film Festival for so many years, I panned, <laughs> I panned a lot of movies. I did pan them. I had no, no kind of, you know, problem about panning those movies. And if there was an exhibition with some bad art in it, or it was a bad exhibition, um, when I was reviewing exhibitions for Bloomberg, I would also criticize or pan an exhibition. But this book is not about that. This book is about um, looking at the trajectory of um, the art museum world and how it has evolved in the past couple of decades, past three, three decades, four decades. And I don't think it's my job or my, you know, my place to sort of throw stones at at, you know, a particular artist um, in that context. Mm-hmm. I think this this conversation is going to be really great. I, whenever I'm doing these, I always think about how I might use them in terms of students who ask me specific questions or need help fleshing out certain ideas. And I'll think, oh, you should read Farah's book or, oh, you should listen to this podcast episode interview that I did. And I think what we're really digging into here, which has never happened before in any of these interviews that I've done, are are these these different ways of going about interacting with knowledge, so to speak, Mm -hmm. where, you know, you're really getting to the heart of this. What is the difference between a critic and a journalist? What is the difference between a scholar who would write this book like me and someone who's coming at this from the position intellectually that you are? And we just, we just do different work. I mean, we just think Mm -hmm. and, and act on the way we think in different ways. I am, I have so many, like, you know, I have notes over here about all these different questions that I have, and and some of them are kind of very specific, but maybe let's continue along these same lines. Um, In the fourth chapter, which you talk about the 1993 Whitney Biennial, um, and you describe it as a textbook illustration of identity politics uh, being applied to visual art. Um, And in other places, you kind of talk more about identity politics and and the, as you say, the so-called culture wars, you always call them the so-called culture wars. And I wanted to ask you, you know, do you think that identity politics being applied to art is a bad thing? Because sometimes I thought you did and sometimes I thought you didn't. And I'm Mm. I'm wondering kind of where, again, where you land on this. Is it a bad thing? Not at all. No, I I don't think it's a bad thing at all. And uh, there's so many different episodes in that book that it's true that sometimes one wonders where where is the author sitting on this or that that episode. no, I do not uh, in the main think at all that identity politics is a bad thing. When there is discrimination, when there is invisibility, as there has been, um, uh, the invisibility of women, the invisibility of artists who are not white males, um, this is a major, major issue in art history. And it is a, it's an issue that basically has prevailed up until about five minutes ago. (laughs) I mean, it really, I mean, we have had moments when female artists have been in the picture. We have had in the 1980s, the Guerrilla Girls putting up all these incredible posters across New York to raise awareness of misogyny in the museum world. But then we kind of reverted back to the way it always was, which is to say that white men 
dominated everything. And it's not, I'm not standing on a soapbox. This is not feminism. This is not me, you know, sort of beating my chest about, you know, because I'm a woman. This is just plain fairness, which is the business I'm in. I'm in the business of looking at situations and seeing where there's unfairness. That's what I do. That's what my job is. And this situation has been so lopsided, so unfair for so many centuries. It's not even a question of decades or years. We're talking centuries. We're talking forever. Okay. So when categories of people have been discriminated against since forever, how are you going to correct that situation except by singling them out and saying, we need to promote women and we need to promote non-white artists and non-white staffers, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's the only way to make any kind of correction to, to, to bring the pendulum to the middle, right? You need to take the pendulum from the extreme it's in and swing it all the way over to the other extreme until then we reach equilibrium point. That's just the way human nature is. That's just the way of the world. And so we need identity politics because we need to identify artists who belong to underrepresented categories. How else are we going to actually correct centuries, if not millennia of injustice? Okay. And, and so then there are people there who happen to belong, you know, who happen to be white men or even white men or women or whoever they might be who turn around and say, oh, yeah, well, right now, you know, all these women, you know, like I can't even get a word in this white artist who's male. He can't get his work shown this other woman, you know, whatever. I, and I just think and I just have to basically I feel like stopping every one of them and saying, do you realize that, you know, <laughs> This reality that we're living in has basically only been going on for about 10 minutes. Um, you know, I think you can basically, I hope you can appreciate the inequity of the situation we were in up until about 10 minutes ago or five years ago, because it really has been that recent, the shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Really, since some of the some of the feminist art historians that you cite in the mm-hmm. book, you talk about Linda Nochlin's work, yeah. you talk about Griselda Pollock. I mean, mm-hmm. um, them starting in the late 1960s, early 1970s. You know, I sometimes wonder, because I, I mean, I'm totally with you in terms of there's no way that you could do the work that I do and not see the in, absolute injustice and inequity mm-hmm. as you describe it. I sometimes wonder, you know, especially because because I'm on the ground, let's say, working with students in the way that I am, if it isn't a problem of we can't get a little bit more equality in terms of having more women shown, having work by BIPOC artists in the textbooks, because these hegemonic male figures, because we won't remove them, you know, like I sometimes think what would happen if we you know, take down the Baltus, take down some of these Gauguins, and then there's actually, you know, there is really only so much room in a book or on a museum wall for for artworks. And I wonder if it almost isn't kind of both intellectually and physically a space issue. There are only so many artists I can cover in any given semester. And, you know, when, when you look at works by, as you discussed, by Picasso, these same names we keep talking about, you know, mm-hmm. over and over. I just think, gosh, if we could just take these down for a little while, we might actually have room to consider the amazing yeah. work that women have been doing for centuries and centuries. I mean, this is not, you say at one point that women became, you know, really professionally well known in the 19th century, but there are a lot of historians who say, you know, I think we've even got that wrong, that Artemisia Gentileschi and Rosalba Carriera and Judith Leister and Rachel Royce, you know, these these artists going as far back as the 17th, 18th century were well known in their own time. Yeah. It's only yeah. us that's forgotten them now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do we need to take some of the bad guys, the, the, you said that Gauguin is the Weinstein of his time, which I really like, you know, mm-hmm. is it a space issue sometimes? Uh, 
Yes, it can be. But again, you're going to find me, you know, taking the middle road as, as I tend to do again. Um, I would say rather than throw out all the quote unquote bad guys or the white guys or the white males or the dominant, you know, um, men, I would, I would mix it up. I would do, you know, um, what MoMA has done. I mean, MoMA, you, when you go to MoMA, you, you know, uh, you can still see the Van Gogh and you can still see the Demoiselle d'Avignon by Picasso and, you know, uh, a major Pollock or whatever it is that you're going to see that's part of their canon. But they have now also, um, they are now showing, as you know, um, artists they didn't show before, hardly ever. Um, they are showing a lot of women artists. They are showing a lot of BIPOC artists and a lot of artists that they had in their collections who were sort of sitting in the storerooms. And I think that there, it is possible to, to, to do a mix of things and not just throw out all the Picassos and the Gauguins and the Cezans and, you know, junk them or put them all in storerooms and bring out only women. Um, although I have to say, this is not a museum, it's a biennial. I was just at the Venice Biennial and, um, and I found the central exhibition curated by Cecilia Alemani, who, as you know, curates the High Line in New York, mm -hmm. to be absolutely extraordinary, even though it, it had 90% of the artists it, sh it showed were women. It was absolutely extraordinary. But a biennial is a different thing to a permanent collection at MoMA or the, you know, the Met. I mean, the Met is not going to have enough women artists because it's the art mainly of the past, but the distant past. But um, no, I mean, I mean, that biennial was sensational. But in the main, I would say, I think there should be museums should have many, many, many exhibitions highlighting all those areas that were in the shadows forever. Uh, definitely, we need temporary exhibitions to highlight those female artists. I mean, there was an exhibition at the Pompidou Center not, not long ago, maybe a year ago, and it was called Elles font l'abstraction. And it was just extraordinary to see all these women of the late 19th and early 20th century who turned out actually to be the pioneers of abstraction. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been sitting here thinking, oh, the pioneer of abstraction was Kandinsky. And before Kandinsky, nobody really knew what, you know. And then you go into this thing and you see some woman, you know, in Sweden or in England, in late 19th, early 20th century, early 20th century, making abstract art. You know, Hilma af Klint. Mm -hmm. extraordinary painter who is now you know just like the star of the art world and who in her day was not getting her due so there is a lot of scope for doing this kind of exploratory work through temporary exhibitions without having to throw out Picasso and and put Gauguin in the basement and you know, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. You know, as you were saying that, I was thinking the last time I taught study abroad in Paris, I, it was such a remarkable year for exhibitions. It was in 2019. And I mm. saw Kahindi Wiley's show of the Tahitian yeah. take yes. at, at the gallery. I saw at the Pompidou, there was an astounding exhibition of Dora Maar's work. Yeah. I went up to London and saw the Lee Krasner show at the Barbican. Mm. I mean, I think you're exactly right that some combination maybe of what MoMA is doing with the constant rotation while keeping the old standbys consistently up and major exhibitions on individual women mm. who just whose work is astounding when you finally can see it and reckon with it um, is definitely at least part of the, the solution. Mm -hmm. I'm struggling because I'm looking over my list of, of questions and of course I still have a million that I that I want to ask you and I think I have to ask kind of one last one before before I kind of begin winding us down. 
maybe I'll, oh, there's so many. Um, I'll ask this, it's kind of broad, but it might be a nice closing. Farrah, what most surprised you about exploring censorship and identity politics and the culture wars at the depth that you did to write this book? Mm. I think that before I really, uh, before I'd written the book, I was like a lot of people, um, sometimes wondering why this or that artwork was getting attacked, why this or that artwork was being taken down, why people were getting upset, why people were asking for it to be destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. And having a kind of superficial reading of this, because unfortunately, I guess people who are my colleagues were not maybe doing a deep enough reporting job. Um, like, for instance, just to, let's take the example of Dana Schutz's, um, I guess, work, Open Casket, at, mm -hmm. um, at the, uh, which was shown at the Whitney Biennial, I guess, in 2017. This uh, semi-abstract representation of Emmett Till, um, this 14-year-old martyr of the 1950s, absolute African-American martyr, um, and, you know, I, I remember hearing about it and, and finding out about um, an African-American artist and activist who, who quietly and peacefully demonstrated in front of the work. And then there was a petition in Europe by a, a Black British artist, and she demanded that the work be destroyed, etc. So the whole hoo-ha around the Danish Schutz. Um, on the one hand, I... I, dis I agree disagreed with the idea of it being destroyed. As I said, I would never condone the destruction of an artwork. However, um, I kind of put myself into the shoes of the Parker Bright, the activist and artist, mainly artist, who had demonstrated in front of the, the work um, originally in, in, at the Whitney. And, and I kind of thought to myself, to be completely fair to this man, uh, this protester, um, and Emmett Till has never to, had never to that moment been portrayed in a mainstream work of art by anyone that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. So here was a white artist with all the good intentions in the world, with all the goodwill of the world, which I'm sure she had, Dana Schutz portraying this martyred boy and putting herself in the shoes of this boy's mother. Um, but at the same time, if I'm African American and I'm and this child, this martyr is really like a really like a hero to me and someone extraordinarily special with with a very highly symbolic importance, I might wonder why this painting is being done by someone who, who doesn't belong to my community. In other words, I wasn't, I'm not, I was definitely not condoning demands for the painting's destruction, but I was somehow understanding more why there was upset around showing this painting at the Whitney Biennial. Mm -hmm. I could understand, I could empathize more. And I think that's what a good reporter should do is empathize and also a good any a good writer of books, a good author, any kind of writer should have empathy. And so I had empathy for some of the people who had sensitivities about um, certain artworks being shown. Yeah. Uh, and that that is what I learned by writing this book is digging deeper and understanding better. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is why, which is why cursory which is the reason why cursory judgments are interesting, but they're all, but I mean, judgment is interesting when it is incredibly well informed. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I, I often think of the best art history when it is judgmental in a non kind mm. of critic sort of way as exactly that as being maybe the, the perfect holy grail blend of empathy and, and really, really well-informed. So um, I, I'm glad you landed there. We definitely need more empathy in our world. Well, I've mm -hmm. taken up a lot of your time, but I wanna ask you the traditional quick last question here mm -hmm. on New Books Network. 
which is, what are you working on now? Are there more books from Farah that we can look forward to coming out? <laughs> there will most, most definitely be um, new books coming out, but um, my main, let's say my main objective, uh, Allison, is to, because this book is new and, and, and just came out this year, I would really want um, to have um, as much of a platform as I can possibly have with this one, mm -hmm. because I'm never going to write another book of this kind because, you know, how, how many times am I going to make these points? Uh, but a lot of research and a lot of reporting went into it. And um, I have seen a lot of art in my life. I do have a very trained eye. I, even though I'm not, I don't have a PhD in art history, I do know pretty much as much as a, any art history graduate would, if not more, because I've just been seeing so much for so long. And um, I would just like to share this particular perspective that I developed by seeing so much art, by talking to so many artists, by being in the presence of artists as long as I have, which is not a privilege given to many, it's a privilege I appreciate. Mm -hmm. I would like to share that with as many people as I can. And I would like to really promote and, um, yeah, talk about this book as widely as I can. And um, if possible, interest as many students uh, and as many uh, art history departments and as many professors and academics and readers as I possibly can. I think that's my that's my mission for 2022 and then <laughs> and then and then next year i think you know uh i am going to start thinking about um writing another one yeah, definitely on i mean the next thing yeah yes yeah. well i'm glad that i i could be a part of the you know the promoting and discussing uh, the you. ideas in this book i I too consider it a real privilege to have this platform and, and to be able to reach both the students and, and the listeners that I do. So I'm, I'm glad that you made time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it, Allison. I, I really can't thank you enough because you're, um, you're an extraordinary launch pad or you're, you know, you're just a great platform for people such as I who, who do want to communicate with um, the audiences that you have, but we, we can't reach them without you. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a very generous of you to, to invite me on your program, uh, to reach out to me as you did. And uh, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. All right, everybody. You've been listening to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Allison Lee, and I've been talking to Farah Nayeri about her new book, Take Down... Art and Power in the Digital Age. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>